Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Um, before we start talking about the book uh, specifically, when I was preparing for this conversation, it suddenly struck me that I had difficulty explaining exactly the kind of thing that you do. So I was stumbled on words like obviously nonfiction writer, but that's very general. Words like cultural history, words like memoir, words like essayist, but none of them really seem to do justice to the kind of work that you do. So I was just curious before we. Uh, begin our conversation about everybody for our listeners who may not be familiar with your work do you have a particular way of talking about the the kind of work that you do and uh, just to say that if the answer to that is no then that's uh, that's absolutely fine too um well first I'm so happy to be talking to you and as we're talking I can see Adam in the bookshop which is very tantalizing because I miss the bookshop and <laughs> um, so this is a pleasure to do it's, I think this has been a problem since the beginning of my writing career, really, because I do do things that don't fit into neat genre boxes. Um, they've always had a sort of braided fabric. So there's elements of memoir, but they're definitely not memoirs. There's elements of travel writing sometimes, um, biography. But I think the main body of my books really is, is cultural history. And what I'm trying to do is interrogate subjects, often difficult subjects, so alcoholism, loneliness, and with the new book, the relationship between bodies and freedom, but to do that by way of travelling through history, travelling through cultural history and travelling through people's lives, trying to assemble as much material as I can to sort of reflect on those subjects as deeply as I can. Hmm. And that's um, that's interesting. I thought about travelling through history as well, because another thing about um, everybody is, I mean, normally in the bookshop, when a book is announced, we have to wait... Um, a year or 18 months for the book actually to come out. But I think I've been waiting for everybody for about five years because <laughs> I remember when uh, when you visited us to uh, to talk about The Lonely City. And uh, if our listeners want to, to hear that, that's available as a, as a podcast in the Shakespeare and Company feed. Um, and there were two things that struck me when I was listening back to it in preparation for this conversation. The first was how uh, I slightly embarrassingly sound quite sort of almost giddy with admiration for the, <laughs> uh, for the book. So I apologise to our listeners in advance um, for that. But also that you you mention uh, everybody as, um, as a project. And it struck me that everybody is such a book for its time now. I mean, we've seen over the last few years the, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. We've seen, obviously, um, COVID-19 has... Uh, dominated all of our lives for the past for the past year and a half, and have really put the body in many ways sort of central to our thinking. And yet, this is something that you have been thinking about clearly for at least five years. Um, so, I'm just curious: would you talk to us a little bit about 
how the uh, the idea for this book arose, and was it sort of a sort of a natural successor to the subject of loneliness that you treated in the Lonely City? That's a really good question. It's funny as as you're talking, I'm thinking how actually a lot of the roots of this book coincide interestingly with Shakespeare and Co. Because do you remember? I can't remember if it was Lonely City or. I think it must have been Lonely City. It was I was there on Bloomsday, and mm. it was just around the time of all of the Brexit stuff really kicking off. Um, the refugee crisis was at height. I think something had happened with Farage that literally that day, and so I think it was about a week before the Brexit vote. Yeah, so we we were talking intensely and despairingly at that moment about what was happening in Europe. And that that's really where the roots of everybody are. It was it was those sort of concatenation of events, the rise of the far right, the sense of the refugee crisis, Brexit vote, and then Trump coming to power. And this sense that people's bodies were imperiled, that the liberation mm-hmm. movements of the 20th century were being rolled back. And I wanted to understand why that was. And those questions inform Crudo and Funny Weather, but all that time I was working on everybody and what I was trying to do with everybody was travel deep into the 20th century and try and understand the answer to two questions really why the body is treated in these desperately violent ways not all bodies certain bodies why certain categories of bodies are treated with with such cruelty and with such abjection but then also how the body has been a source for power, how bodies on the streets have changed the world and whether those sort of powers remain to us in our very atomized, very technologized century, a, a very different time to the, 20, to the 20th century. And so that, that's what was propelling me. But it, it's really interesting that you make a connection with The Lonely City because I think each of my books emerges out of the last that when I was writing about alcoholism in the trip to Echo Spring, I had this feeling that loneliness was running through it and I wasn't quite addressing it, so I wanted to turn to it. And with The Lonely City, there is so much in that book about bodies in trouble, you know, David Wojnarowicz in the AIDS crisis, Andy Warhol being shot and wearing this corset to conceal his damaged body, this sense that people's bodies have secret lives that underpin their work and underpin everything that they do, but are somehow invisible. And I think that very much took me to wanting to address it more specifically. Mm. And, and also that sense, um, and this is something we, we certainly get with um, Nina Simone, who will come to speak about uh, a little bit later. Um, and I remember her being the one of the, the people that you already mentioned that you were you were you were you were considering to working on um, in, in in the upcoming book. But this sense of kind of isolation within one's own body, loneliness within one's own body as well. And sort of, um, in a way, that seems like such a um, such a contradictory idea because the body, one's own body, should be the, the only place where one is guaranteed to feel at home. Mm. And if that is not the case, and that was not the case for Nina Simone and not the case for a lot of the people you, you write about in this book, then something has certainly gone wrong. And... Uh, the question which you see, which you interrogate is sort of whether that's gone wrong in the person itself or whether that's sort of something that's gone wrong in society and that therefore has sort of separated somebody from their bodies. That that feels really accurate. And I, I think, again, that's a question that underpins The Lonely City is how much is this personal and how much is this political? And th- this is why I came to the figure of Wilhelm Reich, the renegade psychoanalyst who who runs right through the book, because 
he was the person who, you know, in 1920s Vienna was struck by this realization that, first of all, his patients were carrying around trauma inside their bodies, not just as illness, but the whole way that their bodies manifested in the world, the sort of habitual expressions that they had, the the tensions in their shoulders or the way they held themselves as if they were flinching or as if they were ready for a fight. This, This sort of sense that our bodies encode all kinds of our past history. But then Reich thought, this cannot just be personal. This cannot just be an individual story. He was seeing predominantly working class patients, unlike Freud. And he realized that what was happening to his patients was to do with all kinds of other factors that are to do with poverty or overwork or poor housing that that were political and that could be politically addressed. And that sense of the both, the both impacting us, runs right through the book. And you see it so clearly with somebody like Nina Simone, who is both suffering as an individual and has really painful relationships with her mother, with her husband, these sort of difficult dynamics with her daughter. And at the same time, you you just can't understand her without understanding all of these other political factors that are impacting on her, the the sense of racial history in America, the sense of white supremacy, the sense of the civil rights movement, that she's somebody who is both an individual person and a representative person, as every single one of us is. Mm. Now, Wilhelm Reich... um... I have to confess when when I when I saw his name pop up I was I was quite surprised and this is um based I think on my broad lack of knowledge actually about about Reich and his work because um I had a reaction which I suspect will be a reaction from a lot of people who have heard of Reich but perhaps know quite little about him which was that he was somebody who had an interesting early career and then became essentially went completely off the rails and became quite discredited in his mm. in his later career. Um, and your book is by no means an attempt to, let's say, entirely rehabilitate him yeah. from that reputation. But it does seem to be an attempt, and to, to my mind, a very successful attempt, to make us reconsider Reich and his ideas and not to dismiss the very, very valuable insights that he had at the beginning of his career, but also also later on. Um, but could you talk a little bit about that? I about mm-hmm. the fact that of having Reich, having this figure who does have such a sort of controversial or sort of maybe even tarnished reputation, and sort of having him as the sort of the the, the central figure of your of your book. I think I I think I'm increasingly perverse with the characters I'm drawn to, <laughs> and also I think there's a cultural movement towards people having to be pure and having to be morally pure and having to be heroes. And I'm very suspicious of that and Mm. not particularly drawn to it. And so Reich is clearly an incredibly complex figure and not a figure who I found it particularly easy to write about. I have spent the last five years really wrestling with him. But at the same time, I couldn't let go of the notion that there was something important in his early work that his life traveled to every different area of bodily experience I wanted to address, that it formed a sort of skeleton structure that would allow me to tell the story I wanted to tell. But also, maybe even more importantly, that what happened to him is to do with the kind of struggles he was involved in, that this is not an uncommon end to people involved in liberation struggles and people who identify and try and resist forces like patriarchy or like fascism 
do not get to exist undamaged by those forces. And that, I think that's really important to recognise that these people are not going to be saints and heroes because they are struggling under and in some ways more vulnerable to the forces that we're all sort of locked inside. And mm-hmm. I think um, Reich is so illustrative of that. And by having him front and centre of the book, it let me sort of tease out those elements in other complex and to some extent discredited characters like Andrew Dworkin, who's also very controversial and whose later career I don't entirely agree with at all. But there are elements that feel incredibly valuable. And I just think it's it's sort of better as both intellectuals and activists to be able to be pragmatic about people's work, mm. to be able to take what is useful and to be able to make sense of what isn't useful, to be able to contextualise it and to see how it fell out that way in order that we might avoid those pitfalls in the future. So although he's a difficult character and a challenging character, he seemed like the right character to tell this kind of story. Mm. In fact, I can't think of anyone else I could possibly have done it with. And it it seems also that sort of, um, I don't know, it it seems that you're sort of almost taking a position, sort of resisting uh, perhaps a very modern tendency to require purity uh, from our figures if we are going to give them any consideration at all. So, you know, the, to sort of the the idea that sort of someone can be both interesting but also difficult and prickly and, and have some sort of dark and unpleasant sides, I think it's something that philosophically perhaps we all accept, but in the kind of, in a lot of strains of current discourse is not necessarily something which is is followed through. Absolutely. And I feel like I've, I've made a career of being drawn to these characters and being drawn to sort of understand them, you know, it's very much there in the trip to Echo Spring, which as more and more time goes past, I think is a portrait of toxic masculinity as much as anything Mm -hmm. else. But that's a subject that interests me. And that's a subject that I'm drawn to exploring. I I don't want to sort of write sanitized books about people who behave in impossible, impossibly pure and good ways. Mm. Now, the, the the way you came to write, so obviously um, in the last few years, it's been as a sort of, um, sort of with an intellectual interest, but your first experience with Reich or sort of Reichian ideas uh, you write about in the book was not actually through reading his books, but actually through um, therapy. Mm. Um, and particularly the sort of uh, the sort of the, the bodily therapy and this sort of experience of um, a phenomenon which I believe Reich refers to as streaming, mm. this kind of this sense of the sort of uh, the energy present in the body and the, and the and ways in which it can be kind of um, managed or sort of expelled or channeled. Um, do you think your your approach to Reich was uh, was affected by the fact that you uh, encountered him first in the sort of let's say sort of in the real life, in sort of practice rather than in in theory. I'm sure it had a massive, I'm sure it had a massive effect. And I think, you know, it's almost like a touchstone to to have had that um, bodily encounter with Reich's work and to have experienced something that, you know, the body's life is resistant to language. It is very hard to talk about the body's life in language. Mm-hmm. And the language that we have for it is is very limited. And is concerned with, you know, surfaces, what we look like, what what kind of things we eat, how fit we are. But there is another kind of bodily life that's that's much more um, to do with us as 
living beings, responsive living beings. And I think sort of touching base with Reich's therapy in my 20s meant I had a sense of what he was talking about, what he was referring to when he was saying we carry these energies clamped up in us, we carry this pain or we carry these grieves and rages and shame of the past around in our bodies and this is what it feels like to relinquish it momentarily, perhaps not permanently. And to have had physical experiences of that happening left me with this sort of residue of sympathy for Reich. I absolutely um, dissent from the pseudoscientific ideas that come later, but, but that sense that what it feels like to carry around the burdens of the past and what it feels like to let go of the burdens of the past temporarily, I agree with him. I agree that that's something we can do. And I think we all touch on that in moments. We've all experienced that, perhaps not on a in a therapist's couch, but with a new lover or in those experiences where we feel like we're almost sort of reborn in our bodies. And we do touch on those moments. Yeah, it mattered a lot to have had that experience. It's it's interesting because when I was reading about that experience, um, and I think you 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 felt a similar thing when you were um, you were first in in this therapy session, was this sort of um, a, a little bit of sense of uh, embarrassment, I guess. And I think it's like I, there's something, and I I, I mean you know this we're, this is one British person talking to another British person, and, British people, yeah, but like the. Talking about the body and the experiences of the body, and um, and even just like the moment there when you uh, uh, when you said, "Oh, uh, and you you have a new lover," there was something in me. There was this kind of Britishness, which kind of went, "Oh, oh by me, okay." And it, I, I and I think that's something which which a lot of people maybe face when they first encounter Reich as well, and some of the things he's talking about is this sort of this sense of sort of oh, this this is a not necessarily a new way of talking about the body, but a way in which I, I'm not comfortable with. I feel awkward around. I feel sort of, and, and you, I, I certainly felt sort of this sense of, oh yeah, actually I'm sort of, my way of thinking about and engaging with the idea of the body is quite penned in, in some mm. way. Um, and did, did you, is that sort of a feeling you had to battle with when, when writing and researching this book? And lifelong, I think. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think the English culture is, um, you know, has a high natural level of bodily armour or unnatural level of bodily armour. We we are, the stiff upper lip is a classic mm-hmm. illustration of Reich's body armour. And I think, you know, figures like D.H. Lawrence, say, were wrestling their whole lives with trying to break down that veneer, or Christopher Isherwood, break down that mm-hmm. veneer of Britishness and that sense of British... Um, uptightness or idea that emotional expression is wrong and this is precisely what Reich's talking about and I think different cultures have different levels of what bodies are permitted or not permitted to do but the same with sex the British find Mm -hmm. it very hard to talk about sex illness however is easier to talk about for English people and I think that that's quite interesting like what languages of the body are permissible and which ones are sort of taboo Mm. um but that's exactly the sort of experience that we're given as very small children. We're, we're raised up within these systems of how much feeling you're allowed in your body, how much um, freedom you're allowed in your body. Mm. That's interesting, the idea of um, British people being more comfortable talking about illness. I, I never I never considered it in, in that way before. I wonder... Um, because obviously the the, the subject of, of illness and health um, is something you 
you write about a lot in this book, particularly through the, through the ideas of Reich, uh, and then you, you discuss um, Susan Sontag's work um, a lot as well. And I, I just it just made me think suddenly, and this is completely uh, a spontaneous uh, thought, so it may be completely empty, but. Do you think this is perhaps something which is different between the Brits and Americans? Like, because I, I said the it's, when I read Sontag that she was sort of pushing against a taboo of talking about mm. uh, of talking about illness, and I, I wonder if maybe there's something in the sort of the youthful culture of the United States, which means that sort of with with their writers and artists are more are perhaps more comfortable with engaging with the kind of the flourishing lifeful body and less comfortable perhaps less comfortable than british people engaging with the sort of the idea of the decaying dying body i think that's so true and i think that's a sort of europe america schism really that america is a cult of youth and you know and jessica mitford's books about the american taboo of death the idea of just mm. aging and dying being incredibly taboo and i think that is what santa came up against when she was diagnosed with cancer was this isn't the narrative for me this isn't what i'm engaged in and this isn't what i want to be happening to my body and then found herself in a world where even the diagnosis that she had cancer was a taboo word was an unsayable mm. word and felt enormous resistance and rage about that yeah i think there is truth in that and, and so this this sort of brings us on, I guess, to one of the um, slightly sort of, I guess, problematic. I wouldn't say necessarily elements in Reich's philosophy, but perhaps one of the sort of the the offshoots uh, or one of the potential interpretations of uh, of Reich is this sense of sort of like the meaningfulness or otherwise of of illness. Um, and this is something which. Uh, yeah, which I, I think is sort of is, is 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 hugely problematic, but in a sense something which perhaps we we have sort of accepted and absorbed, particularly in in recent years, in a way that um, that could be quite sort of uh, quite destructive to the to the way that we that we engage with our bodies when they when they fail us. So um, yeah, would you be able to talk just a little bit about the sort of the idea of the meaningfulness of illness and indeed health to Reich and sort of people who who followed him? Yeah, so Reich, when Reich came to America, and maybe I'll just sketch out very briefly the mm. circumstances of that, Reich ended up breaking with Freud really not because of his work in sex liberation or his ideas about Marx or his communism, but because of his anti-fascist activism, because of his sense that fascism had to be resisted in Europe. And this, this ended up with him being expelled from the um, International Psychoanalytic Association. And that that sort of brought on, I think, a kind of crisis in Reich's life. And he came to America as an exile and became obsessed with trying to prove that his ideas were right, mm -hmm. not just um, as ideas, as a sort of a, an intellectual body of work, but biologically true. And so he started carrying out experiments on mice and he started sort of refashioning himself as a scientist he, he did have a background in medicine so it wasn't entirely legitimate but it, it was basically pseudoscience and hmm. during that period he he Freud had cancer Freud died of cancer just after Reich arrived and I think in Reich's mind the idea of repression and 
stuck energy became caught up with the idea of cancer and became very literalized. So mm. these things that can afflict our bodies, perhaps emotionally or, or dynamically, then became hardened into the idea that when we become unhappy or traumatized or don't express our emotion or don't have a fluid open sexuality we begin to get sick we get cancer mm -hmm. and this is what Sontag is raging against in the illnesses metaphor the idea that if you have um you know tuberculosis means you're a passionate person and cancer means that you're a repressed mm -hmm. person how can it be that literal says Sontag it can't possibly be at the same time I think there's an awful lot of nuance and space between those two quite extreme ideas so I spent my 20s working as a medical herbalist and it was very clear to me that the patients I saw were physically ill they were coming with all kinds mm -hmm. of different physical illnesses but at the same time the illnesses that they had were the ground for them to talk about all kinds of other things that were happening in their lives or that had happened in their lives illness wasn't a separate domain from abuse in childhood or a divorce or intense loneliness. And those narratives were deeply braided and part of the fascination for me of practicing that sort of medicine. So I think there's a space between what Reich says, this will cause this in a very rigid causative way, which we see wash up in new age thought and in the wellness movement. Mm -hmm. And what Sontag says, it's completely random. Illness is absolutely random and has nothing to do with you as a person. The reality, I think, is somewhere in, in the difficult ground in the middle. And I think um, it's so interesting to have this book come out in this moment where we have all globally been wrestling with physical vulnerability and seeing the ways in which physical vulnerability is absolutely entwined with larger forces like poverty, with class, with race. We, we can see that almost like a heat map over different countries mm -hmm. in the world. And, and that seems to also um, highlight what we were talking about earlier about this sort of um, why it's perhaps important that we develop an ability to talk about the body and subsequently illness. Because if we don't have the the vocabulary or if we're unable to articulate uh, exactly what we mean uh, about the sort of the relationship between um, psychological state or life events and physical illness, then there is the risk that we will fall into one of these two camps, this kind of meritocracy of illness in a way that's sort of like if you, you know, if you're well, it's because you deserve to be well. And if you're ill, yeah. it's because you've done something to make you ill. And this other sort of terrain, as you say, this sort of Sontagian terrain of kind of being completely, um, completely random. But it's, it's very hard, I think, to come to develop a vocabulary for talking about the body. I mean, one of the things that uh, uh, Sontag sort of experiments with and then sort of rejects is this idea of uh, the sort of the martial metaphors of mm. um, of illness. Uh, and it's something which, um, which you, you, it's so easy to fall into when you have people around you who are sick. You could like, you talk about the sort of fighting the cancer, for example. Um, and I think of uh, Christopher Hitchens when he fell ill and like he was also rejecting this idea of fighting the cancer and him sort of describing his body as the the battlefield on which other people were, uh, you know, in which the doctors were engaging with, uh, in, in war with the cancer. And yet again, that was... It was, you know, it was a, it was a twist on the martial metaphor, but it was still this idea of kind of, of kind of fighting. Um, 
And so, yeah, so do you think that, to, to what extent do you think that Sontag uh, was sort of, was was able to, to, to sort of, to, to find that vocabulary to allow her to express, you know, specifically the nuances of, of the illness that she was facing? I think the thing with Sontag is... <laughs> I'm I'm trying to find the right word, which is a liar, but Sontag's public narrative about illness and Sontag's private narrative about illness are not the same stories at all. So mm-hmm. the, the sort of public-fronted Sontag who is saying illness is utterly random is not what the Sontag of the diaries and the letters is saying at all. So there's a more vulnerable, more um, tender narrative of questing that happens in Sontag's diaries where she, she really is thinking through her own life in the light of her illness where the experience of being harmed and vulnerable with cancer and with chemotherapy very brutal chemotherapy that she had and very brutal surgery that she had of course calls up all the other experiences of being harmed and vulnerable in her life of which there were many so that's what she actually talks about in her diaries and the sort of um, almost weaponized version of you know rhetorical argument that she sends out into the world on her behalf it, it isn't the whole story and it's interesting because illness as metaphor is a very martial book. It rejects those metaphors, but it very much sees itself as going to war. And I think mm-hmm. that that sense of um, attack and defence is, is very sort of loudly articulated within it. But the more nuanced story definitely exists within the private realm. Mm. And, and on, on, the, on the, the way that she sort of reacted in the private realm, you said it a little bit, not exactly said it against, but you sort of, you, you said it alongside um, the way that uh, Kathy Acker, another writer who uh, you've, you've engaged with, particularly in, in your novel, Crudo, uh, the way that she responded to her, um, to her illness. And, and that, that, that was in a sort of, um, I guess, a very non martial way, would you say? But also a very extreme way. They're, they're mm-hmm. very interesting characters to sort of set alongside each other because Aka um, is desperate not to have an experience of meaninglessness. She, she doesn't want to just be consigned to a body that is having a random experience, random meat. That terrifies her. So her experience is one of a desperate search for meaning by way of all kinds of therapies, some of them wildly pseudoscientific and in fact on the borderline of criminals when you read Chris Krause's biography you really see that lots of the people around her were extremely dodgy and predatory and um, what drove her in all of that was that she she wanted to use the experience of being physically ill to make sense of a childhood that was actually very similar to Sontag's I think putting them alongside each other sets up so many interesting parallels of how these very powerful, very brilliant women nonetheless had to address questions of vulnerability and abjection and found that, as we all do, extremely painful. But Kathy Acker almost makes abjection and humiliation her brand. She seizes it and she sort of flips it on its head and sometimes refuses it entirely. But that, that narrative of what we do when we have to address our own vulnerability is a very very painful one i just mm-hmm. want to throw in as well that i think um for people who are interested in this subject the undying by Anne boyer is an extraordinary cancer memoir that came out after i'd finished this chapter but that brings in much more about um the medical model and sort of industrialized medical model that the patient is 
is sent through, is pushed through, and it's an extraordinarily beautiful book that I think is very interesting to read alongside alongside Sontaganaka. Mm. And, and interesting as well, um, you mentioned that because, um, of course, one thing that you, you talk about, I mean, it's not central to your discussion of Sontag and Akka, but uh, it's crucial nonetheless, it's the sort of the the terrain on which both of these women were engaging with their illness was the health service or lack of health service mm. in the United States. Um, because we're going to come on, obviously, to talk about the sort of various liberation movements. Um, and I think in many ways, people could sort of might think of sort of health and wellness as sort of being in some way disconnected uh, from a lot of these social movements uh, like uh, women's liberation or sexual liberation or, or you know, uh, or, or the fight for racial equality. But in fact, underpinning uh, a lot of uh, particularly Americans' experience of um, of, of their, their health is this kind of this, this social divide, whether you have insurance or not, and therefore what the kind of... Uh, the kind of healthcare you you're entitled to. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I, that's a thread that I sort of run through lightly, but it it's completely and utterly crucial until there is healthcare available equally to everybody. You you can't possibly talk in those sort of new age terms of health being somebody's birthright or health being somebody's um, reward for their morally pure or uh, you know emotionally healthy life it's it's those things aren't equivalent at all it's much more about access to healthcare. Mm. um now you mentioned earlier that uh the the thing that came between ultimately came between reich and freud was their uh, disagreement on how um fascism should be resisted or or not um but it, you do you also mentioned that it, the, the reich did have these uh very radical views on sex and uh, the orgasm and gender. Um, and this is gonna, I think, gonna sort of lead through into um, in the rest of our discussion, because it does seem that sort of, uh, from the way you write about Reich, that he was at the source of a lot of the uh, ideas that gave rise to the uh, various liberation movements we saw over the 20th century, particularly um, I mean, he, he coined the term uh, sexual revolution uh, and had a very um, forward thinking uh, view on uh, on gender and sexuality as well. So would you just be able to talk a little bit about the, the kind of the context, particularly the kind of 1920s Germany where sort of Reich came up and where the, where these ideas were formed? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I describe Berlin in the book as a sort of hotbed of new ideas about sexuality and, and sexual freedoms. And there were multiple threads to that, the, the sexual liberation movements that were happening in the 1920s in the UK, in Germany, across Europe and in America as well, were very different from each other, incredibly complex and sometimes completely at war with each other. Some were much mm. more conservative than others and some were very radical indeed. And, you know, there were there were multiple threads that the the right to abortion for women say or the um decriminalization of homosexuality which was being passionately fought in in various countries um and reich took up a fairly outsized role in that and part of that was his belief that the orgasm was very important in terms of his understanding of how the body carries trauma he believed that the orgasm was a way for the body to release its tensions. Um, 
in some ways, it's a pity he had that idea, because I think that's part of why his afterlife has been so problematic, because that notion, not particularly um, well understood, was taken up by the 1960s beatniks, by people like Norm mm. Mailer or Saul Bellow, William Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, um, without particularly understanding the anti-patriarchy, anti-capitalist context for it, and just seeing it as, get your rocks off, get your rocks mm-hmm. off, that's the cure to, you know, society's ills. It's that simple. And mm-hmm. so it gathered a very sort of macho mm. tone. And when you come back, this this was the thing I think that has been most important about revisiting early Reich, Reich's, Reich's early work, is the most important thing about Reich to understand is that he grew up in a violently abusive marriage. His mother had an affair, his father found out, and he subjected her to violent beatings until she killed herself. And I think that is the ground out of which Reich's ideas arise. The idea that a woman can be destroyed, completely and utterly destroyed as a person, as a body, because of her sexuality, underpins everything that he thinks and does subsequently. He isn't just saying, you know, sex is a joyous force and naively we should all indulge in it. He is saying, I want a world in which women can express their sexuality without fear of violence and without being condemned to unplanned and unwanted pregnancies. He saw very graphically what that looked like in his work in the clinics in Vienna and Berlin. Women with many, many children living in abject poverty again, often beaten by their husbands. And that sense of what he wanted for women is so powerful in his early writing. And yet nobody talks about it now. It's sort of the right that's been forgotten. This is why Andrew Dworkin loved him. This is why the second wave feminisms loved him. And yet mysteriously, that sort of right, right who spoke against patriarchy over and over again has vanished in favour of this person who just talks about orgasm as if it's this kind of neutral and benign force and mm. I, I don't think it's that at all i think that that's a, that's a crucial thing isn't it that if you that if you are just going to take the idea of sexual freedom and apply that idea to a sort of rigorously patriarchal society then that freedom will be dominated and possessed by the men in that in that situation yeah. Um, and that's uh, something you you you, you discuss um, quite a lot. I mean, you talk about this idea, uh, like from your uh, from your own experience about you, you talk about like the pleasure of being able to inhabit a sexual body, shifting into the horror of never being able to be allowed to be anything else. Yeah. And there does seem to be this sort of, and I don't think we're in any way uh, past it now, but this sort of uh, the world, I guess, the sort of the sexual world into which men and women grow up if left unreflected upon, is actually two, two vastly removed worlds. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the, the, um, so the two, the two writers, well, three writers actually, that you, um, that you sort of engage to, to have this discussion in everybody. And I think this is really one of, I mean, in a, in a book that is fascinating from beginning to end, I think it's really one of the most uh, compelling conversations uh, are Andrea Dworkin, who you've mentioned before, Angela Carter, and uh, and the Marquis de Sade, who both of these women wrote about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think it's, for, for me anyway, it was sort of like as somebody who's read a little bit of Dwarf Dwarking, quite a lot of Carter and quite a lot of Saad, it was a completely, it, it gave me a completely new perspective on all three of the writers, seeing them put into sort of uh, triangulation with each other. Um, could you just talk a little bit about that sort of your, when you decided to write about women's liberation, you, there were so many, uh, obviously, writers you could have you could have chosen. What led you particularly to Dworkin and Carter, and why it was specifically their writings on Saad that um, that allowed you to kind of crystallise your thoughts? I think um, having written about sexual liberation, it, what I had to then do was look at sexual violence. It, that that seemed to me essential. That that's the problem with the sexual liberation argument is. You know, if you're just seeing sex as a kind of free-for-all and everyone should be able to do what they want, well, what about this question of sexual violence? Which is really a larger question about freedom. What is the nature of freedom and how do we balance individual freedom against collective freedom? So that seemed like a site at which looking at the Marquis de Sade was very profitable. That he, he is somebody who's very bound up with those questions. And Andrea Dworkin and Angela Carter both interrogated him, both felt that he was a meaningful person whose work encoded some kind of truth. But they had very different ideas about what that truth was. Dworkin thought it was the playbook of misogyny. Dworkin thought that what the Marquis Saad wrote down was what he wanted to do and that she almost sort of um, placed him in the dock and <sighs> took the crimes that he committed on the page with exactly the same level of seriousness and texture of reality as the things that he did in his life. And Carter is not that kind of reader. Carter is a much more fluid and sophisticated reader. But Carter also saw that what Saad was doing, or how you could make sense of Saad, was as a grotesque accounting of what total freedom really looks like. The total freedom in the Chateau of Silling in 120 Days of Sodom is not an Eden, it, it is a rape camp. It, it's a place in which abominations are carried out on other people's bodies. And part of why I found Carter's reading so accurate and so telling is that having read Sud, it's not pornography in the way that other pornography is. It's not particularly titillating. It is, um, it has a capacity to place you somewhere very frightening inside your own body. It, it's mm -hmm. it's an experience of terror, really, reading those books. I find them extremely challenging mm -hmm. to read. Um, and I think yeah, uh, go that's on. definitely something which um, I think, unless you've read Saad, it's very difficult to get a sense of the extreme nature of of his writing, in fact. Yeah. Like, I think I think yeah. the sort of the, the position of Saad in popular culture, I mean, whether that's a sort of, the Jeffrey Rush portrayal of him. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of, it's, it's, it is as this kind of titillating figure. And then when you pick up yeah, 120 <laughs> days or you pick up, you know, uh, philosophy in the boudoir. And it's, I, I, I just, I just remember just sort of being stunned yeah. by, 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 by the lengths to which, to which he, which he went. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I mean, they're extraordinary. Hmm. I, I loathe them but I think they're extraordinary and important books and if you're trying to travel to a sort of ground zero of what both what humans can do to humans but also what what guises freedom can can travel under then you have to look at Saad. Saad is, Saad is essential I think. 
Mm. Now, now you mentioned that um, for Dworkin there was no sort of material difference between what he wrote and what he did, um, and this is something you know Carter takes a sort of the the, the opposing position, you know, it's a distinguishing between fantasy and fact. And it struck me while reading that that sort of obviously both of these writers. Uh, Carter and Dworkin are sort of pre-internet and pre-social media um, writers. And it struck me that this is a discussion which in recent years has been kind of warped by uh, our sort of disembodied online existences and the way that sort of people who, particularly people who are exposed for for trolling online, um, sort of will sort of make the distinction between sort of, oh, these are, you know, whether they have said, I don't know, rape threats to uh, uh, a celebrity on Twitter, for example, and we'll see, we'll, we'll often put forward that argument of, oh, this, these these are just words. These are just the sort of like the, the way pe- people engage online or it's a joke or something like that. Um, and I, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I, I can't really ask you to speculate on this, but it just struck me that both Dworkin and Carter would probably have, fascinating things to say about this kind of this modern sort of seeming grey area. I think Dworkin would be immediately onto that because it's actually quite similar to her arguments about pornography anyway. She says that Mm -hmm. there is no zone of the imaginary that doesn't impact on real bodies, that doesn't create a climate of possibility for what happens to real bodies. So I think she would be a very useful person to have around in this moment. And the experience of reading her now in the last few years has felt very different to reading her in the 90s it's it's felt like this often happens with with very radical cultural figures that a level of her argument has emerged into clarity that i couldn't really see before and Mm -hmm. perhaps because of that sort of climate of social media that we're all dredging our way through i think um her arguments that might have felt too extreme do do make sense into that world, absolutely. As to what Angela Carter would have made of it, though, I can't imagine. I wish she was still here. I think it's one of the, the sort of great tragedies of writers who died young that Angela Carter isn't still around as a as a brilliant old lady. Mm. One one um, one of the things that sort of uh, also sort of implicates Saad in the rest of the discussion in the book is this the fact that he sort of. He, he was a libertine at heart. He wrote sort of, you know, the, the, there's the expression of sort of absolute liberty in his works. And yet he was somebody who spent a great deal of his life in prison. Um, and of course, you know, there are um, many different ways that, the, that the, the, the body can be restricted and can be destroyed. But one of the most, I guess, kind of overt ways in which our our society does so is um, is through the imprisonment of our bodies. And again, Reich was somebody who, um, well, not only was imprisoned, but as as you said, I was astonished to see this was somebody who was the only, I think, politically authorized book burning in uh, United States history happened to yeah. to, to Reich's works. Um, but we're not going to obviously have the time to talk about all of the uh, the different people that you um, that you write about. But one that I would like to spend a little bit of time with, just because. I again feel slightly embarrassed not to have heard of before. Um, was somebody who wrote a lot about 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 prison uh, was uh, Bayard Rustin, um, and so this is um, well. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to you rather than try and give a kind of uh, a quick capsule sort of summary of Rustin. Would you be able to talk a little bit about how how you discovered his work and the importance of him? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting, you know, with these books, some characters 
have a long, long life inside the book, and I know that they're going to be there from the beginning, but some arrived quite late, and Rustin really arrived because I was looking at who else had been in the prison that, that Wright died in, Lewisburg Penitentiary, and um, and Bayard Rustin's name was on that list, and he was a civil rights activist, and so I was sort of immediately intrigued by how he ended up there, and his story was so incredibly compelling and so compelling in particular about the idea of our bodies being forcibly inserted into categories that that limit and contain what we're able to do and Bayard Rustin is an example of intersectionality he's a gay black man and his queerness inhibited his life within the civil rights movement and his race inhibited his life within the gay rights movement. And that that sense of somebody being impacted by, sort of deeply impacted by the kind of body that they lived in, but also absolutely refusing it, refusing it in every possible way, and almost sort of laughing in the face of every attempt to limit him, whether that was prison, which he went in and out of repeatedly for... Um, first of all, as an anti-war activist, and then as a civil rights activist, and then as a gay man who was arrested for cottaging. So all of these different imprisonments. Um, but he was also treated very badly by the civil rights movement. He was Martin Luther King's sort of lieutenant and right-hand man, but his sexuality made him permanently a threat. And when it um, when Martin Luther King was really under attack by the FBI, the Contra Pro programme, People were saying that they would um, tell the media that Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin were involved in a sexual relationship, which they weren't. But the threat of that made Martin Luther King reject Rustin. And then he was brought back in as the architect of the March on Washington. But again, the the right wing white Republicans who, who opposed the march used Rustin as a sort of target to say, well, you know, this person is a, is a pervert, is a, is a sexual... Um, dissident and he will make your movement look bad so again Rustin sort of moved to the back room of the movement and his um, absolute refusal to bow to any of these pressures his refusal to be more discreet about his sexuality his refusal to stop the kind of activism he was involved in was just so inspiring to me that you know in in a book that's really about people being damaged in lots of ways by these forces to have Rustin kind of laugh in the face of them from his prison cell it was just extraordinary so he feels to me like a very important person in the book and it, it, it sexuality is it does feel when reading the book that um it's it's almost sort of the um i don't know it was almost sort of weaponized by uh, opponents of other movements, whether that be uh yeah. women's liberation whether that be the civil rights movement there's like the the one thing, particularly in the late twentieth century, and possibly, I think, to a certain extent today as well, as a one thing, as a way to discredit uh, yeah. certain certain movements, and, or, yeah. and so you had people like like Reich, who was obviously we talked about, who sort of spoke about this sexual revolution, refused to treat Allen Ginsberg because yeah. of his sexuality. And for example, we talk a lot about the McCarthyite witch hunts. And one thing, and again. Confess a little embarrassment for not having known about was Executive Order uh, Ten Four Fifty about the sort of low barring homosexuals or what quotes as sex perverts from federal employment. And there was this whole kind of 
gay witch hunt which yeah. took place which has not assumed its place in the sort of the annals of sort of mainstream history in the way that the say the the communist witch hunt which absolutely did. and it's still and so, to yeah. me that you know what happened to reich reich's reich's sort of witch hunt and imprisonment he he had pseudoscientific ideas but those pseudoscientific ideas didn't do any harm to anybody and the fda spent a quarter of their budget over two million dollars pursuing him his books as we just said were burnt by the American government, including the mass psychology of fascism. And when you try and understand why he was the subject of, of that kind of almighty pressure, I think at the bottom of it is sexuality, that the ideas that he had about sex were dangerous, were, were seen as so subversive and so disturbing that he had to be crushed with astonishing violence. It's, it just, it just, Beggars believe, like I, 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 I'm always left baffled by this sort of fact that something which is essentially the the sort of the, the private interaction between two or more people can sort of like does does provoke such extreme reactions and such sort of hatred from uh, from from people yeah. like the sort of the fact that the sex and sexuality, particularly I guess homosexuality, can still provoke people to such uh yeah to such violence is um yeah i, I find i find i find utterly baffling do you think, i mean is it is it something perhaps rooted in the sort of the 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 threat acceptance of homosexuality might pose to the kind of the patriarchal dynamic I, absolutely yeah. i mean i think you, you issuewood says this very clearly when um the the nazi government is coming to power that that sense of returning the two sexes to their preordained duties of of procreation, so women's sexuality outside of marriage and childbearing and men's sexuality outside of heterosexuality are both dangerous forces because they're not engaged in that um, task of nation-building. They're outside of that. They're, they're, they're renegade on some level. And I think, um, you know, it's it's not an accident that, when the right comes to power, those are the things that become criminalised. Gender mm. variety becomes criminalised, abortion becomes criminalised, and homosexuality becomes criminalised. That that happens over and over again, and we see it across the world right now. Um, so before we finish, there are a couple more things I would like to talk about. I mentioned Nina Simone at um, at the beginning, and as I said, she was the, the one person you mentioned when you first talked with us about uh, this the project for this book five years ago that you were you were already um, working on at that time. Um, I mean, I think probably most of our listeners will be familiar with the kind of the the the, the force of Nina Simone's voice and the and the and the power of her her lyrics. But could you talk a little bit about what it was particularly about the idea of the way Nina Simone engaged with? the body that meant that she had to be such a sort of central figure to, to this book? I think I wanted this book to have an arc that sort of travelled through the difficult areas of bodily experience, you know, went down to the experience of the prison cell and then went back out into these sort of Reichian bodily powers of contact. And part of that is political protest. And part of it is a sense of just being able to contact crowds. And I think Nina Simone 
lands in both of those areas so so beautifully that she was a civil rights activist she was somebody who experienced her bodily life very intensely her experiences of racism were very powerful um but her her experience of sex was also very powerful she thought very deeply about these places where she could set down her body's burdens and as a performer she was very um articulate about what was happening on stage what sort of gigantic energy transfers were happening to Mm. audiences that were often composed of civil rights young civil rights activists who she felt that she was um you know taking in all kinds of pain and trauma and transforming it for people making this sort of mass transformation exercise and allowing them to go out lightened or go out with burdens set down go out electrified perhaps she also talked very eloquently about giving performances to rich white people and wanting to just destroy them wanting to smash them break them down the sense that um her song mississippi Goddam was the equivalent of bullets back to the killers that that idea that song was a way that you could address large feelings and address large forces as a as a sort of companion to actual political activism, actual activism in the streets. And the way the way that she did that, the way that you can still feel that even if you're just watching her performances on YouTube was so powerful to me. I wanted um I wanted to have that presence in the book. And it's really interesting because I, I had forgotten that I was thinking about her that long ago, that she she was set in the book that long ago. But she feels to me really like the heart and soul of of that book, Reich, Reich sort of gives you the structure, but Simone is the person who lives it, I think. Mm. And and I think that that's really interesting that idea of the sort of the um, the relation to to the crowd and to um, and to the audience as well, because there's sort of there's there's a sense that. Uh, it's a sort of there's a there's a definitely a back and forth between sort of like whether you know she's in, in certain ways kind of absorbing the the pain and the sorrow of yeah. the of the people that she's singing to like she's almost she's exercising it from them yeah. and sort of taking it on herself and I think yeah. you know, and in a very kind of live with that and that's so interesting in parallel to to Reich and to Dworkin mm. you know I talk about Dworkin taking on all of these rape testimonies how do you live with that how do you survive undamaged by that kind of burden and I think this is where we come back to the idea of a lot of these people they're not perfect they're not they're not heroes per se they are damaged by the kind of forces that they engaged with and encountered and tried to resist and you know Nina Simone we know was violent to her daughter Reich we know was violent to his wives and they aren't perfect by any means but seeing the work that they're trying to do the the attempts that they're trying to make and the almighty forces that are attempting to crush them I think gives a lot more nuanced understanding of what they're what they're up against maybe the um part of the the explanation lies in the the fact that they are just one body in the end yeah um and that was one thing that I'd, I'd like to sort of conclude the discussion with is that sort of um when you when you talk about the the crowd um you talk about going to your uh, first gay pride march at nine and, and you sort of you recall the feeling of 
marching bodies on um, on Westminster Bridge. And then you, you also talk about your time as a as a climate activist and the sort of using the body as a as a tool of um, of resistance. But there's this this wonderful sense of the sort of the the body as part of a mass. And of course, that can be something in which the the body, the, the single body can be lost and can be trampled and can be overwhelmed. But it's also something uh, which you could become kind of a part of, which you can kind of transcend your your single body. Um, there's a wonderful turn of phrase where you said like once or twice you've been in crowds that have felt like a huge animal. And in reading that to me, it felt like perhaps and particularly for our times, for the fact that you know, we have seen uh, this kind of push and pull between the isolation of COVID and uh, mm. taking to the streets of the Black Lives Matter protesters, perhaps that therein lies the sort of the the sense of where the body can be can be sort of channeled and transcended is these kind of these moments when when the crowd does become that 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 huge animal. I think. It seems to me that that is both a moment where we can experience ourselves as part of an everybody, but also that those are the ways in which we, the collective we, over history, have enlarged our powers and our freedoms, that it is bodies on the streets that have changed the world, especially in terms of freedoms that are, that are enlarging freedoms that belong to more people, suffrage, all of these sort of justice struggles that have happened over the centuries happen because many people say we do not want to be ruled by the few. And often those struggles are violent. Often those struggles historically have been very violent. It's hard to sort of adjudicate a line around that. But at the same time, it was so interesting to be finishing this because the Black Lives Matter struggles were happening across the world and to see that sense of people declaring and seizing their powers, people realising their powers in a society where we are told so endlessly that we're powerless and that sort of almost hypnotised by a social media of political nightmare. We're, we're told how hopeless everything is, and I, I don't think it is. As, as somebody who's been very involved in environmental struggles, I still think that there's a way in which we can make a better world, but it requires all of us. And I think it requires a relinquishment of a fantasy of individual freedom in favour of a larger collective freedom. And that's painful in many ways, but I think it's necessary. Olivia, that's the perfect place, I think, to leave it. I could go on talking with <laughs> you about everybody for, for hours and hours, uh, but it's already been an hour, and I think uh, <laughs> I think I, I need to I need to, to liberate you to, to to go about your day. Um, thank you so so much for for speaking to us. I'm sure it has come across to our listeners what a wonderful book I think um, I think everybody is. Um, so all that remains for me to say is, Olivia Lang, thank you so, so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. And I can't wait to be back in the bookstore soon. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. 
Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. Thank you.